Good morning, everybody. That is a song we have not sung in at least a year and a half, and it sounded really good. I, I, it's a little better than I thought it was going to be, didn't you, Chase? Um, and so we're just continuing to bring back some of these songs we haven't been able to sing in a while, and it's just it's wonderful, wonderful. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of John chapter 13. John chapter 13. This is one of those favorite chapters in the Bible. It's very famous. And it also is kind of the, the, the breaking point of the Gospel of John. Because the first part of the Gospel of John is about Jesus' uh, you know, public ministry. But now, as we hit John chapter 13, it begins Jesus' private ministry with his disciples. And so something very decisive is happening here, and these Gospels really tell us about this Last Supper, and they tell it in different ways. Actually, John deals with it much differently than what we call the Synoptic Gospels. Now, the Synoptic Gospels, that's what is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And what we mean by that is those go pretty much by the same pattern for the most part. They tell kind of the same stories, but when you get to John... John tells different things. And so here they are. They're both in the Last Supper. And in this Last Supper, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they focus really more on these elements of the bread and the cup that we have just taken. And John focuses more on everyday life. He focuses on this love that we are to have for one another as disciples. And so what we see, and this is our text for this morning, and this is kind of like where we're planting the flag, if you will, for what we're dealing with today. It comes from John 13, 34 through 30, 35. This is all during this meal. And Jesus says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know, that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so Jesus says, listen, the identifying mark, the primary identifying mark that people will know that you're my disciple is how you love each other. And that's powerful. That's really powerful. Last week, we, we, as we've continued in this series on the the whole disciple. And by the way, next week Peyton's going to finish us up on this particular series. But we looked at this new community that Jesus rises up in Jesus. And now this week we're going to see what this community is to be known for. The whole disciple is someone who is defined by love. But these two verses that we see this morning, they don't stand alone. They're right in the midst of all this is happening in John chapter 13. And here he's telling us about love, and he's defining us as this is the mark of love. And right before it, he tells us about Judas. And he says that one of you is going to betray me. And right after those two verses, he tells us about Peter. And he says, one of you is going to deny me. And it's set right in the midst of all of that. And, it, and, it, and what had just led up to this meal, and what was happening in this meal, is Jesus, he washes their feet. And you're going to see that this, this feet, foot washing is key to understanding what he tells us in our love for one another. 
In fact, this is the way John chapter 13 begins. If you have your Bible there, you can look at it. He says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That's the way it begins. A love that loves to the end. Now, foot washing is not really a common thing in our day and time. And probably no one wants to bring that back. Um, my grandparents, they went to a church, they were primitive Baptists, and they, they washed feet. I think they did it once a month, something to that effect. But it's, it's not as common. It was common back then because people walked in sandals on dusty roads, and it was a disgusting thing. You think it's bad when someone takes off their shoes and socks. Imagine that they haven't had on socks, and they've been in sandals, and they're walking in dirt. And the sweat and the dirt and everything else, it's just disgusting. In fact, it was such a menial thing that when people came in, and if someone's feet were washed and they came into a house or to, before a meal, that even Jewish slaves, they, they were not required to wash feet. That was left to the Gentile slaves. That's just how a menial task that this was. And so when Jesus takes off his garment and he puts a towel around himself, he is taking the form of the lowest kind of slave that is out there. Now that doesn't mean as much to us because we don't wash feet. So let's, let's kind of put it, maybe help us a little bit here, although it's not, you know, apples and apples here. But, but let's just say the Queen of England shows up at your house. And she goes and starts cleaning your bathroom. Now, we, it's, it's kind of laughable to us because we're like, that, that's just so inconceivable, first of all, that we would ever meet the Queen of England, and especially if she ever came to our house. But, to, but then I think we would be very uneasy to think that the Queen of England is, is cleaning our toilets. I think if we're very honest about that, we'd say that'd make us very uneasy. And it's not that cleaning toilets is... Uh, is, is a bad thing at all. It's the fact that the queen is cleaning your toilets. Right? And so here is, here is God. And he's washing their feet. He's doing one of the most disgusting, menial tasks that is out there. And he's doing it to his disciples. This is more than a lesson on humility. It's more than a lesson about servitude. It symbolizes Jesus' greater act that is about to happen of Jesus coming and cleansing us on the cross. And we know that because Peter, he protests. He says, no, Lord, you're not washing my feet. And Jesus rebukes him in verse 8. And what does he say? If I do not wash your feet, you have no share with me. That's more than just let me serve you. It was important to understand who does the washing. Peter needed a cleansing that only Jesus could give. And foot washing becomes very symbolic of the cleansing of the cross. It testifies of Jesus' love to his disciples. And by the way, this cleansing theme and so forth, you see it all throughout the book of John. And that's why it's important here. But then Jesus turns it on them, doesn't he? And if you look down in verses 14 and 15, he says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, he says, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example 
that you also should do just as I have done to you. And that's what takes us to this new commandment of our text. Now, we read this and it's like, okay, here's a new commandment. Wow, what is it? We've never heard this before. Love one another. Wait a second. That doesn't sound so new. If you have just an inkling of an Old Testament understanding, you know, it sounds very familiar to Leviticus 19.18 and that just continued to pass on. That you were to love your neighbor, that's to love one another as you do yourself. What's the difference? It's not about a new command to love, it's the standard of that love. Whereas to love others before was based upon as you love yourself, but now he says, I want you to love one another as I have loved you. And that is a standard that is higher and greater than we can ever imagine. It points to Jesus' most immediate act of washing their feet. To truly love one another, we must pursue a life of servanthood and a life of, of, of sacrifice for one another. Jesus is talking about this new community where love for one another is patterned after on the loving act of God, on his cleansing his people. Our sin and misery required Jesus to give it all. He looked into our ugly, sinful, immoral faces, and he loved us to death. And what he's saying is that when we look into the faces of other Christians, and in their times where they've sinned against us, and their times when they've been ugly, and he says that our love for them is going to be greater than their own sinfulness towards us. The new command is looking at your fellow disciples in a new way. And when we talk about loving people in this way, it's like, uh, how am I capable? How can we do this? And there's only one way. It has to come through the empowerment of the Spirit of God that lives within us. Because I don't believe this kind of love that Jesus has is, is that we're able to do. We live in a world, folks, that's filled with so much anger and hate and vengeance, and we can't help but want to respond in kind. I would love to tell you that I am loved with the perfection of Jesus' love towards others, but I can tell you I haven't. I can tell you I've come a long way. I can show you ways that I have, but I realize that I still need more and more and grow in the Spirit of God in my life. The Spirit's not going to do something that we're unwilling to do. He's not going to make us do anything. But if we want to be empowered by God's Spirit to do what He's asking us to do, we can do it. Because listen, it's difficult when we love other Christians and they did not return that love in kind. I can tell you I've been challenged on this recently. The elders have been challenged on this recently, and nobody in this auditorium. That's the point of Judas in John 13. You see, Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him, and he even washed his feet. 
And it even says that he ate with him. And we've talked about all the significance of eating at table with someone else. See, that kind of love, that can only come from God's Spirit. Anybody remember the days, the old bowling alley days, when, when, when smoking was allowed? I know some of you younger people, you, you're like, what? No, that's disgusting. No, no, no. Listen, back in the day, that's just what you did. That's how you got your nicotine fit. If you didn't smoke, you went to a bowling alley. And, and it just gets all over your clothes. It gets in your hair. You know, you could see somebody later on, a friend of yours. You know they don't smoke, but you smell smoke, and you're like, you've been bowling. You know, because that, I mean, that's just like, and it doesn't matter. You can be at the opposite end of someone who's smoking. And I promise you, you're going to smell like smoke. It's just the way it is. And that's the way it is in the world. We live out in the world, and, it, and we can't get the scent off of us sometimes. It's difficult. It affects us. We, may, we have to discipline ourselves, and that's where Peyton's going to end this whole series. But we've got to discipline ourselves to stay close to the one who continually purifies us. And in John 15, he tells us who it is. It's the true vine. We just don't have time to go there. But his supernatural power will work through you and the world, I promise you, even in our imperfect way of loving others, as we continue to love others in the way of Jesus, the world will notice. They'll notice. And I think it's interesting, you look back at our text, he doesn't say, listen, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have the right rules. If you have the right doctrine, if you have the right purity, he says, they will know you and how you love one another. Because you can have all of that other stuff and not have this. You say, come on now, look at the Pharisees. Folks, the Pharisees. They were meticulous, traditional thinkers of Jesus' day. They stood on the right side of those important issues of the day. And they are the ones who struggled to love the people that Jesus loved more than any other group. The very people that Jesus would even bring into his community. And that should be an eye-opener for us. When Christians disagree on issues, there is a tension between our, our passion for what we believe is right and this tension to love each other. And, and I'm not sure I have ever seen the tension so high in our churches, because I, I talk to preachers, I'm, I'm, I'm on a, in a group, there's all these preachers and elders, and, and about six, seven hundred or so, maybe even be more than that, and there's, there's several of us, and, 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 and I know, I see it. And this tension is so high in our culture, and it used to be the tension was between those who were conservative thinkers versus those who were progressive thinkers. But we've gone much deeper than that. We've gone much deeper than, you know, some who will look at me and say, you know what, I don't think he's sound. Or churches, and I know that they have disfellowshipped, that's their terminology, they've disfellowshipped another church because they believe that they have these liberal tendencies. And even the other side, if you really look at them and if you're really honest with them, the very ones who say you can't do that kind of thing, 
They, they can be the very ones who are so hateful to those that they believe are this conservative thinking minds. And, and there's this, always this tension that's there. And a lot of times, most of the time, it's over opinionated issues. My aunt, who lives in Alabama, she once told me about, she's reading the NIV in a Bible class, um, and, and the, one of the ladies in the class referred to it as her Mickey Mouse version. Just spoke up. That's a Mickey Mouse version. It didn't go well after that. But imagine our disagreements on things such as the work of the Holy Spirit, on things such as instrumental music and worship, or women's roles. I've known Christians who have spoke out on social issues, and, and they became ostracized by the very people in their churches. And now, apparently, who you vote for, for some, it is a test of fellowship of our love for each other. I love this church. I've said this many times over the last year and a half. We've had people who have left us. They're not coming back. We know some, they've gone to other places. There are some that they have just quit, and we're not sure that they will ever want to come back. And yet, here we are in an auditorium people, and, I've, and this is why I've just grown to love our, this church. In this 12 years, I've been here 12 and a half. 12 and a half years that I've been here, that this last year and a half has just been the most enlightening to me. Because we have disagreements. There are going to be people who disagree with me whether or not you go up to heaven or if one day heaven is coming down. Or whether the Lord's Supper that we have been taken, if it should be done in the midst of a meal, or whether it should be done with trays that are passed around. Some people don't take as hard a stand as I do on certain current issues, such as racism. And I don't think it's because necessarily they're racist, it's just we disagree on how severe the situation is. There are people in this room, they disagree about vaccinations and masks. I know that shocks you. There are people who voted Democrat in this room. I know it. There are people who voted Republican in this room. I know it. There are even people who voted Libertarian. They're in this room. And I know it. And yet here we are every week. And we should never allow any of those things ever to come between us. We should never become antagonistic towards others in any of those things because of the unity of this church. And none of those things should ever come between us because Jesus washed the feet of Judas and he ate with him. I think if he's going to do that, I can certainly sit with someone who votes different than I do. He can, I can certainly sit next to someone that I disagree with on even a doctrinal issue. Love is the single greatest evidence that there is for being a Christian. They do not know us by our doctrine. They will not know us by our purity. They will not know us by our perfect attendance. They will know us by our love. And that's why we sing this song. Sing it. We'll start it off in unison. 
We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. And we pray that our unity may one day be restored. And they'll know we are Christians by our love. By our love, yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. We will work with each other. We will work side by side. We will work with each other. We will work side by side. And we'll guard each man's dignity and save each man's pride. And they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. You know, we talked a few weeks ago about the defense of the, you know, the true disciple of someone who is, is defense of their faith. So we know we're going to have those times that we may disagree on things that we truly believe. But there is no greater defense of our faith than it is for our love for each other. In the second century of Christianity, the good news of Jesus had spread throughout the Roman Empire, even to their great cities of Rome and Carthage. And because these Christians had left behind these pagan lifestyles, they were talked about. They were talked about with the way they, they, the things that they said in their worship, the things that they were doing in their worship, and these were all just false and they were wrong. And it was Tertullian. He was a second century Christian leader, and he, he wrote a book about this, and he came to the defense of the good name of Jesus' followers. And this is what he says. It is mainly the deeds of a love so noble that lead many to put a brand upon us. See how they love one another, they say. For they themselves are animated by mutual hatred. How they are ready even to die for one another, they say. For they themselves will sooner be put to death. If people outside of this church were to come in and to take a careful look at this group of Christians... Would they say, my, how they love one another. My, how these people, I feel like they would be willing to die for each other. The very first thing in our church covenant, the first thing is that I protect the unity of my church by acting in love, mercy, and kindness. You cannot be a member of this church. You cannot be a part of this church family if you can't get past number one. That's very important. Jesus did something the world has never seen before. It's a group of people who are identified by one single act, and it's their love. You know, we see all kinds of groups out here in our world, and some are identified by skin color, some are identified by uniforms. Some are identified by tattoos or certain foods they abstain from. Maybe their athletic prowess or maybe their political leanings. But that is not the way to the community of Christ. None of those things matter to us. 
It does not matter the color of your skin. It does not matter your nationality. It doesn't matter if you have a secret handshake. It does not matter if you have some kind of special mascot. We noted last week that this new community that came up in Acts chapter 2, that these people, they, they, they brought together, and these folks had come from all over the known world. If you read it, they're coming from all over the known world. And all of a sudden, they are bound together, and they are doing these things together, and they are meeting each other's needs. Folks, that's very symbolic of the washing of the feet. It's love in action. It made an impact on that city so much that it says every day there were more and more people that God was adding to the church. There are a lot of places we could go to find communities with shared interests. You know, you can find people who share your same interests in sports or gardening or music or politics. But the new command is that we invest in one another as Christ invested in us. Love isn't based on attractiveness. It's not based on our popularity. It's based upon the model of Jesus who washed even the feet of Judas. Turn in your Bibles to the book of John chapter 1 as we get ready to end. Because I want you to see how John just opens up this whole book. Now, I've said back and forth, you know, that the, the scriptures, they keep going back to the First Testament, to the Second Testament, back and forth. And, and this is the way John starts. Okay, get your thinking caps on. In the beginning... Does that sound familiar? Ah, oh, how about that? Yeah, Genesis 1. We're supposed to take our minds back there. And he tells us who it is that created all things. It is the Word. And God said, and God said, and God said, and God said in Genesis 1. And the world just comes into being. And here we see that the Word is Jesus. And what does it say there in verse 3? All things were made through Him, and without Him there not anything made that was made. And in Him was life. He brings life, right? That's what we see in creation. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. What happened in the creation? It was all darkness and chaos. And he said, let there be light. And he overcomes the darkness with the light. And it's not the sun, moon, and stars, because they don't come in until day four. This is day one. And here he says that the light that came and overcame the powerful darkness in the chaotic world, he says he has come into the world into the form of man. And all throughout the book of John, you, in fact, you ought to go through it. Read the book of John. Just, just circle every time you see something that has to do with light and darkness. And it includes the blind man in John chapter 9. Oh, it's, it's, it's powerful. We don't have time. But anyway, so there's this, all this terminology of light and darkness back and forth. And what we see that's unfolding is how the light has come into the world. And those who, who come to the light, those are the ones who come to Jesus. Those who continue to live their wicked ways. These are the ones who have rejected the light. And we just see over and over again, there are those who have been exposed to the light and they reject that light. And there's none greater example than Judas. He was around the light more than anyone else. And yet in the end, he rejects it. And we are supposed to reflect upon that. And say the light of Jesus Christ, am I rejecting it or am I accepting it? Do I want to live like Jesus 
or do I want to live like the world, but I just want the benefits? Because there's, those are two different things. So we come this morning, and Jesus is the light. And, and you may be here, and you're just like, I'm just searching right now. You're searching for that light. We want to help you. I do a thing called Coffee with the Preacher right after this. Right after this, after we have a, a closing here in just a moment, I'm going to go right through that door and go straight across. And I want you to come. Come join me. Maybe some of you, you're struggling with the things we're talking Listen, get with one of the elders. Get with me. I don't care. We'll sit and we'll talk. We'll pray about it. There are other people in this church that you can sit and you can pray with. But listen, the light is here. It is upon us. And the light, listen, it ultimately is going to overcome the darkness in every way. Jesus came in the beginning, John 1 tells us, there is a new creation that has emerged. And that new creation comes through the light that has broken forth in the darkness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your love and your grace and your mercy for us. For times, Father, when we make Judas look like the good guy. In times, Father, that when we are just seems like we are covered in darkness, you continue to minister to us and love us in ways and trying to bring us back to you. Father, I just pray if there's someone in this auditorium right now and they're in this darkness, Father, let us use us, use us, use your people to help show them the great light of your Son. Father, we just come to you in such thanksgiving. And Father, we just pray that your spirit will continue to grow and, and to have its way in our lives. Help us, Father, to submit more and more of our lives to you. But Father, we just pray that this community will know us. If by nothing else, not by, not by that big fish that used to be out in our parking lot, not by the pumpkin patch, not by some of the other good things that we've done here, but Father, may they know us more than anything else than our love for each other. Father, I just thank you for this group of people who are here. I pray for those who are not here, those who have abandoned us. Maybe there's some good reasons, I don't know, Father, but it hurts. But Father, I just thank you for this group of people and as we continue to be light in our world. Father, we love you and we thank you for your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray, amen.